Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. We want to make art preach in super explicit ways, which sometimes takes away the artfulness and takes away the work the Spirit of God can do. Hey everybody and welcome to The Calling. I am Richard Clark, an editor for Christianity Today. Today on the podcast I'm talking to Amina Brown, a poet and the author of the newly released How to Fix a Broken Record. Amina has explored artistic expression from a bunch of different angles. She's dabbled in rap as a teenager. She explored uh, she explored Christian poetry for a time, but she finally found a home in the Atlanta poetry scene. At her shows, there's no altar calls or blatant evangelistic mission. Just a bunch of people from all sorts of worldviews and all walks of life invited to share their art with one another. In her latest book, she goes beyond the subject of art and explores a wider breadth of subjects, self-image, dating, marriage, social media, church, and happiness. But in every case, she addresses these subjects artfully and with transparency. My conversation with her followed a similar tact. Her life tends to be haunted by things like Jesus and art, so those subjects naturally kept coming up. But the the nature of the conversation reflects her own interest. She's mostly interested in the people around her and her relationships with those people. Before we get to the interview, just some uh, housekeeping stuff. Uh, I wanted to let you know that if you're a fan of Amina Brown or you're interested in her book, we're going to give away three copies of her book to three people who rate and review the podcast. Those people will be selected randomly. You don't have to give us a good review, though that would be awesome. Um, You just need to review the podcast. Next week, we'll choose three random people who reviewed our podcast and send them a free copy of the book. So make sure to tune in and find out if you won. Uh, You won't be able to get the book if you don't listen to the next episode because we'll need to tell you what to do next. This podcast is brought to you by those of you who subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. So if you're not doing that, you'll need to get on it. Christianity Today magazine offers a redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the culture and our church. As a subscriber, each year you'll get 10 award-winning print issues, tablet and PDF editions of each issue, full web access to ChristianityToday.com, online archives dating back to to 1956. It's a really good deal. We've set up a special page that'll allow you to get a discounted subscription plus a bonus download created especially for podcast listeners. You can only get that deal at orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct.com slash the calling. Just head on over there to subscribe. By subscribing to CT Magazine, you'll be supporting thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us to continue to produce episodes of The Calling every other week. And now, here's my interview with Amina Brown. Is Chicago like your favorite food city? You know what? 
I might have to say that's true because I can't think of another city, and I'm sure there are many, so any listeners that are like, it's my city, my city's food's better. <laughs> um, I really can't think of a city that has as many of my favorite foods in one place. Yeah. I can't think of another city more than Chicago. I kind of think... The Chicago staples are not great. I'm like a huge fan of the hot dog, the Chicago oh hot dog. Oh my gosh, it it changes your life that yes. hot dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Completely, but it's also like really easy. It's like not impressive to make oh. a a good Chicago. <laughs> it's like just pile some stuff on top. But I have like a vendetta against Chicago pizza. Oh wow! Please, I don't please share this because I just can't imagine there being a vendetta against something so delicious. What? What? It's just lasagna. Oh my <laughs> god! It's just like it's just it's just terrible on every wow. level. Are you more of like a New York pizza fan? I guess then? I like yeah. I mean okay, I like just okay. normal. <laughs> Not normal. <laughs> normal pizza. I just like regular crust. What do they call it? At Little Caesars or whatever, like yeah. that tells, okay. tells you. I'm not a big like pizza person okay. in general. Okay. I mean, I am. I eat a lot of pizza. Yeah, and I like it every time. Yeah, but I don't always like care about it. <laughs> My favorite food city is Nashville. Like by really? far. Yeah. Okay, what are you eating there? That's like that makes that your favorite. Food so city? they have the like meat and three thing going on Word. there. That's a southern thing. I hear that. I mm-hmm. freaking love that. I hear that. And also, um, hot chicken is pretty darn good. Yeah, that hot chicken goes hard in the paint. And I've even had like where it wasn't hot, but there was just like honey poured. That's amazing. On top of the chicken, they just do all kinds of weird stuff at a in hot Nashville. chicken place. So I do, I do respect that choice. Yeah, yeah. I feel like because we live in the South, mm-hmm. there's this element of like when I'm other places. Mm. I mean, I do eat fried chicken other places because I think that's important. Yeah. But when they start getting into like the barbecue and uh, the macaroni and cheese and the you know, some of those like Southern sides, I'm kind of like. Right. Why would I do that in in certain in, town that's not in the in South? Chicago, right. You know, yeah. I'm like, no, I'm yeah. not doing that. I'm I'm in the capital of <laughs> where the Southern food is. Right. So like I I hear that. I uh I moved from Alabama, or at least I moved to Louisville from Alabama, mm-hmm. and then after Louisville, I came here. Yeah. So uh, I just miss it desperately. And yeah. when I go to Nashville, I'm like, this is. Yeah, you got to get it in. It's like get it in. heaven. It's so good. I'm like that about Texas, actually, because I went to high school in San okay. Antonio. Yeah. So I got spoiled with the Tex-Mex and mm-hmm. the breakfast tacos and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like whenever we go to Texas, it is like tortilla smorgasbord. Right. Like, <laughs> we get home and I'm like, oh, I ate all the tortillas, but I felt like I had to. I'm in like the place you right. know, with all the salsa and the pico de gallo. It's yeah. important. Well, this has been The Calling. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> no, Food is kidding. also a part of that. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's important. <laughs> so um, we always ask the the first question, how would you define or describe your calling? I think if I could say that in one word, I would say storyteller. Okay. I think I love words. I love writing and talking. I love talking a little more. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? <laughs> so that makes me love performing. Like in front of people? Um, you prefer public speaking over writing? Yes, okay. but I but in general as a person, <laughs> right. I love I just love just talking. Like talk. It's like super enjoyable sure. and having conversation with people. I love that part. So I write so I can perform or so I can talk and share that in a public space. I do love writing. I just love performing a yeah. little more than that. But I would say all of it, all of my calling in some way I think connects back to storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you discover that that was your calling? 
I don't know. I, I, it's almost like I don't know that I would have been able to ascribe the word calling to it until much later in my life. But when I was a little girl, I just I loved reading books. I played outside a little bit, you know, like freeze tag and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, hide and go seek, those kind of things. But I wasn't like into sports or anything for the most part as a kid. So I just I read a lot of books and I just had a lot of honor and found a lot of inspiration in books. So I decided probably by eight or nine that I would becoming authors I would do something that involved putting my words in a book yeah what books were you reading oh my gosh um I read Judy Bloom okay as a little girl I read a lot of Roald Dahl James Uh and the Giant Peach and um Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Witches uh so I would sort of like find an author and just start like reading all of that author's stuff and I was reading poetry uh, pretty early too. So I was reading Maya Angelou and right. reading Nikki Giovanni. My mom had. How old some... when you were reading poetry? I was probably around nine okay. or 10, I think, when I started reading poetry. And my mom saw that I was very interested in it. So she kind of had some different little, like little books around that had poetry in it. And of course, Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein. I remember yeah. Shel Silverstein being a big big deal to uh-huh. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when did you embrace poetry as like something you wanted to do? Um I actually took a took a poetry I don't, well I can't say the whole class was poetry my fourth grade teacher Miss Perry as a part of uh Dr. King Day celebration she had us write poems on like the themes of his speeches or of like some of the things that he had been about in his life and that mm-hmm. was my first time like writing poems on my own, yeah. you know. And after trying that, I was like, this is amazing. And Mm -hmm. it was sort of like this project she did, which I always love to tell that story because, you know, she's my fourth grade teacher. I never saw her again after that. And she totally like revolutionized my life, you know. So I hope that's encouraging for people who are teachers or feel called to teach because her project was like, you're going to write. I think we had to write like eight to ten poems. Mm And uh, they were handwritten in marker. I don't know if you remember those markers that used to smell like something. Yes, there was like yeah. a thin one and there was like a really thick one. Totally. So I wrote mine in the thin one okay. and you could put illustrations. I was terrible at that part. But I did it anyway. And then she gave us cardboard and she told us to bring towels from home. Uh-huh. Now that I'm an adult, I'm like, I wish a child would uh, take my good dish towels or whatever it was. It was like the shorter, not the washcloth, but like the shorter towel, the hand towel, I guess. <laughs> Now I'm like, I pay good money for those from Bed Bath & Beyond. You <laughs> right. don't just tape on no piece of cardboard. Right. But anyway, I did. And that was sort of like my first poetry book as an eight-year-old. And I think that like totally solidified it for me. That was like the first time that I saw my words in this book that I made. I was like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. When did you connect that like with your faith? Were you Christian at the time? No, I no. didn't become a believer until I was 12 years old. Okay. Uh, and my mom, I, I mean, grew up definitely in a church-going family, generations of preachers and ministers and people in my family. So I grew up around God. Uh, but my mom just had a period of time that she wasn't she wasn't following the Lord. And she uh, rededicated her life to Jesus when I was 12 years old. Okay. And that's really um, what made me like pray the prayer and want to start a relationship with Jesus myself at 12. So I think... At 12, going into 13, the church where I was, um, that we were going to, was very arts-centered. Okay. So I immediately, like, had an opportunity in my youth group to write poems or perform poems. I mean, it was the 90s, so we were writing raps. (laughs) (laughs) We had a hip-hop dance team and a step team. You know, there's a lot of 90s. Is that is that, that only nineties stuff? Like that doesn't exist anymore? Um, not in the way that it did at that time. Okay. It I don't was nineties raps. 
like the ways that it felt like you had to dress when yeah. you were a part of that. Totally. And we were definitely uh, performing our rhymes about Jesus over Biggie's beats. Yeah. And I was like listening to choir music. I wasn't listening to like, you know, just mainstream hip hop at the time. So when our little instrumental would play, I'd be all excited saying our little Jesus rap lyrics. Uh-huh. And my friends were like singing the lyrics to Biggie's, you know, rap. And I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> I was like, what's that? What's Can't You See? Uh-huh. Well, anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> So when um, when did you start like doing spoken word in church? Oh man, I feel like I feel like that wasn't until I was in college because okay. when I was in high school, I was definitely I've spent a couple of years very focused on my rap career. And by rap career, I mean um, you know like Sunday school and. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, tell me about it. did you did you think of it as a career at that time? I, you were like, this is what I'm going to do. Kind of. Okay. Because, I mean, some of this is very 90s thoughts. You know? Okay. There were like a few of us that were in the youth group that all rapped together. And so we had this like grandiose idea that we were going to be like, you know, a, like a different version of like Wu-Tang. You know, how uh-huh. Wu-Tang had like all those members, you know. Yeah. It's going to be like... 36 of us and we were all gonna like jump on one song and each of us was gonna have like two and a half bars and everybody was gonna get their own little time Mm -hmm. and it was like feeling really real until it got time to go in the studio my mom was like you are not going in the studio recording anything Uh I don't want you she was like you might be the president someday and I don't want you recording something you might regret so all my other friends got to like go to the studio and actually record some of the raps we were writing in high school that is interesting my mom was not having it so that is a that's like a pivotal moment where your mom was like no this is not what you're gonna be about no do you appreciate that in some ways yes because i'm almost certain in the year of 1996 that i would have recorded some things that i would not want to be anywhere for anyone to hear now yeah but in a way as we were trying to write this verse that my mom wouldn't let us go to the studio and record Mm -hmm. because of the language and whatnot (laughs) um i was supposed to write a really short verse and I didn't write well to the music. Mm-hmm. So I just like wrote my stuff on a piece of paper and all my friends I rapped with were very upset about it because it was too long. Yeah. And it was around that time in the late 90s when the movie Love Jones had come out mm-hmm. and Lorenz Tate played a spoken word poet in that film. And so seeing him do spoken word made me make a connection then like, oh, maybe I'm not the best at doing at doing rap music mm-hmm. because I don't write well to this precise like eight bars or 16 bars of music if I do spoken word poetry I can Mm -hmm. (laughs) talk as long as I want to so I think it was kind of towards the end of high school and then I moved to Atlanta and that's when I really got a chance to see spoken word done in, in its own environment yeah this episode is brought to you by the truce podcast I'm sure you've been there You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Did you, um, so, so when you moved to Atlanta, did you have a hard time breaking in the community there or did you find community pretty easily? It was pretty easy. The community, uh, particularly the poetry community, and I've, I've been there almost 20 years now, so uh-huh. it's still the same. Um, it's very open to you coming to the open mic and sharing. So just, um, to, just to clarify, because yeah. I think this will guide our conversation. Is this like a Christian poetry community? No. Or, okay, this is not just in the, Atlanta, no. This is the Atlanta spoken word p- yes. poetry community. Yes. Got it. You are going there in a room full of everybody. Mm-hmm. Various faiths, various ages, what various are the perspectives. The ones uh, that I would go to, some of them were bookstores. Like okay. there was a Barnes & Noble that had an open mic once a month. Mm-hmm. And that was cool because it was really, really diverse, um, not just culturally, but also in the genres of writing that right. people shared there. So that was fun. And then uh, one of my favorite ones was this. It was like a hole in the wall. I don't even know if it was like, <laughs> I don't know. It was a hole in the wall place. They had wings they were serving there and there was nothing in there but a microwave. So I still don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I still don't know how all that was happening uh-huh. but that one had probably more of the really dope spoken word poets in okay. it that hole in the wall place it was actually co-owned by two poets um akil and jessica care more uh, jessica care more who is still uh, just a phenomenal spoken word poet herself huh. so uh, they co-owned that place it was called more epics and i went there i was 19 but i'm in a room with like people who are in their 30s <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so it's becoming apparent to me one that I'm not as good at this as I imagined I was in my room yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that I've got a life I've got a lot of life to live and yeah. a lot more writing to do to sort of garner my voice but I just kept going back even though they would be honest with you if they thought it wasn't being done well <laughs> right right what was your hope at that point like what did you well, I, I guess I'm wondering about the career part, right? Oh, yeah. Like what? Because it doesn't seem like there's a clear career track for no. spoken word poets. Mm-mm. So what was the what was the goal? I don't think I ever thought I would be a poet as a career. Okay. I just loved it so much, and moving to Atlanta, there was this like, there was like this whole community of people doing that. So yeah. I had like a, an outlet, a place to learn and be sharpened and grow mm-hmm. um, as a writer and as a performer. There were a couple of poets we knew that were full-time, but they were so rare that I just didn't have that expectation. I assumed I was going to be a novelist, actually, or become a professor and teach writing. And then, you know, I had grandiose profession professional thoughts about that some of my friends or professors are like what i was like yeah i'll totally have time to write over christmas break i'll totally feel like doing that Uh all summer after dealing with all these college kids surely you know so that's what i thought i'd be doing and just kind of doing poetry Uh, as a hobby it really surprised me that that became my career right so uh so what how did your how did your faith affect the spoken word poetry you were doing at the time or was it sort of like was it was that a focus for you or was that something that was kind of like tangential or what that's been like an a very layered journey I feel like in Mm. the beginning when I first went to my first like real open mic that like wasn't at my church you know wasn't in like any sort of you know, controlled environment in that way as far as what content might be said. 
um, I, I realized something that we know is true. Poets in the community are the truth tellers. That's mm. been true in so many, so many civilizations, back to ancient civilizations, right? So many communities. And so I realized that if I, as a Christian, am going to say these poems that I hope shine the light of God, mm-hmm. whether I explicitly I'm talking about God or not, that I hope they shine the light and hope of God, right? Yeah. Um, first of all, I need to write well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I heard a lot of things there that I found horribly offensive, mm. but they were written really well. Right. And that I needed to come into that environment more than expecting the people who were there to come into my sure. Christian church environment. Yeah. So I think that initial stage, the first few years, were very informed that way. Then I sort of got back into a church bubble when spoken word got a little more popular in church. So then I was sort of planning that for our local church, and I was traveling a little bit doing that. And then I had to re-enter that spoken word community in my city and then realize in re-entering that that I had become more of a teller than a truth teller. Huh. If that makes any sense. No, so that over, doesn't make sense to like, me. Explain over, it. Over time being in church, okay. because I was talking about God okay. to an audience of people who predominantly believe in God, I didn't have to take the time to really tell a good story. Right. Because this the good story didn't really matter necessarily. I could win the audience over. Yeah. You just say just something they agree of, with. Yeah, and, just yeah. sort of having like a list of things, you know, mm-hmm. about God. I could have a poem that said Jesus 50 times, like just literally saying the name of Jesus 50 times. And by the time you get to the 20th time, the audience is They're roaring. Pop. You know, They're <laughs> yeah. like, oh my gosh, Jesus. I mean, that's how yeah. powerful his name is. That right. could totally be a poem by itself. You yeah. know, but When you go back into that poetry environment, the craft of you having put that name 50 times down on a piece of paper mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work as well. <laughs> like people are like, okay, tell me a story. Like make me make me smell what it's like there. That's really interesting. That's like the distinction between worship music and like a Christian artist writing music, yeah. right? Yeah. I wonder if that. Do you think that that is a flaw, or is that just the way it is? Is that like is church art like worship oriented art? Should it try a little harder in that respect? I feel like as an artist who is a believer, I want to. Yeah. Okay. You know? that, no, that's fair. Yeah. I'm like, I sense. want to. And yeah. I and in my mind, God deserves that. Yeah. Now I do believe the name of Jesus is powerful enough that whole songs can exist around mm-hmm. Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. Whole poems can exist around Jesus' name. And also I can tell a story about loss. Yeah. And that loss story also shine of the redemption of God. I can also tell a story about growing up or 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 write a poem that's funny mm-hmm. and the joy in that poem also shine of right. God. So I, I sort of have the, I feel the tensions in that, you know, because I don't, I never want to discount. I never want to discount art, yeah. but I also feel like um, we want to make art preach in super explicit ways, mm-hmm. which sometimes takes away the artfulness yeah. and takes away the work the Spirit of God can do, that the Spirit of mm. God can take what looks like an abstract painting and speak to us. Right. But sometimes in our church settings, we go, well, that's too abstract. We're almost like paint by numbers in some of the ways that yeah. we do that. Yeah. And that, I do think, uh, hurts us in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would would you say there was ever a time that you 
uh, doubted your calling? Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I think, and I don't know if it's like doubt the calling itself. Okay. I think maybe I'm always like, whether I feel insecure or secure in that mm-hmm. this this is true, <laughs> that yeah. this is what my calling is. I think the doubtfulness comes in more of like, can I do this right. that God has asked me to do or what God has given me to do? Am I the right person for that job? You know, I could look around and think, man, there are some other people way more gifted than me or they're just like, I don't know, the way they use their words is way different than me. Like, I think those are more the insecure places where the doubts come in. I think I always come back to like, that's really what I have is that I can write and talk. I can't do science. I can add, but you know, if it gets a little complicated on the math side, I can't really, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like this is my stuff I have. Right. But do I doubt sometimes? Should it be me? Yeah. Am I doing the best I could with it? Oh, absolutely. Hey everybody, I'm interrupting this episode of The Calling to Talk to Morgan Lee about an episode of our other podcast, Quick to Listen, that you might find enjoyable. Morgan, tell us a little bit quickly about what Quick to Listen is. You've ever felt really emotional or worked up about a particular topic? Hopefully this is a podcast that might be helpful to you. We try to pick something that's in the news that people are feeling really passionately about and then bring in someone who can help us figure out in the middle of our passion what's actually going on. So I host this podcast alongside our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. It's a pretty interesting show. I, so, I feel like I learn something every week that I host it. One of the cool things is that even though this is like a current events podcast, a lot of these episodes like really stand the test of time. Like they stay pretty evergreen um, over time. One of the ones that you recorded back in June um, is called A Guide to Spiritually Survive the Evil of Terrorism. And I thought that our listeners might find this interesting because you talked quite a bit about um, poetry. It's a, it's about the Psalms mm-hmm. and how they uh, how they deal with like suffering and that sort of thing. Um, your uh, guess believe was, it or not, that was in the middle of one of the many terrorist attacks that we will not remember. <laughs> right, like year. one of the one of those things that felt like a big deal at the time, and and it was, and it we've was just a been big a big deal. year. And now we've just forgotten. Well. It's a good episode to listen to. Check it out. Quick to Listen in general is a great podcast. Listen, subscribe. Check it out. Back to our interview with Amina Brown. So I assume you like you're 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 part of a local church. Yeah. And what would you val- what would you say you value most about the local church? Man, I value the community okay. most. Um professionally I'm married to a DJ mm-hmm. so we and we are performing in predominantly faith-based environments is that which, him? yes this, that's the DJ this he's here in the room <laughs> for listeners um, so for us we're primarily we're, we experience a lot of church services yeah. that way or Christian conference sessions that sure. would feel like a church service so we don't have a lack of like hearing the songs sung, hearing mm-hmm. the sermons preached, hearing the talks given. We don't have a lack of that, but what we can't get on the road that we definitely get in our local church is the community, is the people there who know us well, Yeah, the people that we get to know, um, that we get to walk through their lives with them, right. and they get to walk through our lives with us. And that is something that 
I value in general, but because of what we do, that there's sort of this like public stage element to that. Um, it's nice being at our home church and just being there with people and people walking through life with us and opening up the Bible with them and trying to gauge where our lives match or don't match what the words say there, you know? How often are you performing at your church? Never. Never. I've never performed either one of us actually. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you are you just like at I'm at one of these churches. Are you at one of those churches where like that's not a thing they do? Is that what it is? No, I think they do that um sometimes because we have a friend who's come there and done okay. spoken word before and the invitation has been extended to me. Like, okay. We Got would it. love for you to do that, but it was early on when we first started going to church there. And so um, one of the guys at church was talking to me about it, and I was just honest with him and said, you know, we've just started going to this church, and I just I want to give myself some time to be in the community with people before I'm just, like, doing stage things. Um, and he was very receiving of that. He was like, I totally get that. He was like, the door's open here. If you ever think of something that you think would work, a sermon series that pastor's doing, he's like, just... We're open to it. So there's like the door open. But I've also like what I'm writing now <laughs> is not necessarily something that would go before a sermon or after okay. a worship song. <laughs> so are you still performing for like secular audiences now? Yeah. And what's the what's the feeling you get from people? They must know, right, that you're like a like you're like a Christian performer as well, right? Sometimes they know and sometimes they don't because okay. they're just not like we still host an open mic in Atlanta four times a year. And our okay. open mic is not a Christian open mic at all. It's not a clean open mic either. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh -huh. people come there. I mean, as long as it's not like racist, sexist, homophobic, you know, mm -hmm. problematic in those ways, people come there and say what they want. Right. So even in hosting that, like I think I think a few years ago after we start, we've been hosting a while and one of our friends came and she said, hey, I went and I was like googling you and did you know all these videos of you are up on youtube and i was like oh, girl really <laughs> so it's almost like a separate thing in some ways people that are close to us they know what we do for mm -hmm. a living but a lot of people in that room are not are not connected to what would be considered like our sort of Christian subculture to know those artists or care about that. Yeah. Um, they want to know if the open mic's dope and if my husband's spending the good tunes and mm -hmm. if it's a good time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, what do you think like they get out of that? Or what do you, what are you offering them? Like what's the motivation behind you doing those secular, secular events? And I don't even know if I ever use that word. I think I'm just, in my mind, the word it's, secular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have all the like weird feelings about the sacred and the secular totally. because I, yeah. I'm like I've had so many sacred moments in what people would consider to be a secular place, mm -hmm. and I've also been in what should have been some sacred places and had very what would be considered very secular moments. Mm -hmm. You know, right, right. So I'm always like, I don't know. It's kind of tricky to tell. Um, I think a part of it for us, I, I'll say for for both of us as artists, I think my husband would also say this is true, but for me as a poet in particular. It is what grounds me to stay connected to my local poetry community. Mm, yeah. And hosting an open mic is one really fun and great way to do that. It's also a way to do that that is about other people's voices more so. I mean, I do a couple of pieces there, and obviously my husband's DJing there, but it's not for me to go there and do a 60-minute set of my poems. Yeah. It's for me to host it so that other people can do their poems. Yeah. I think it's also a great place where first-timers 
get to come there right. who've never read a poem in public at all. This yeah. is their first time taking their poem to public place. And it's an honor every time someone does that at our event, you know? So I think a part of it is I... I, in my professional life, I get a chance to, you know, we've performed in arenas and at conferences and shared stages with some amazing people. And that's awesome. And I'm excited we've had those opportunities. Honored and humbled we have, you know. And it's also important for me to go back to that open mic yeah. where people are shaking with their papers in their hand yeah. and make sure that I am also communal in that space. Yeah. And getting a chance to hear poets who are just freaking better than me. Right, right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know about you, but there's a tension there for me because and I relate to it like there's I'm a big like local church guy like I am in love with the local church It's it's a big passion for me at the same time like I work in a Christian magazine I go to church and I feel like so I just finally found a thing here in Wheaton that I've started doing that's like not those things, right? Yeah. Like an extra thing. It's like, it, it's improv. It's I'm terrible at it. I'm just taking <laughs> classes. I just I started. It. It's the worst. It. But um, uh, I'm the worst, not it's the worst. I'm bad at it. But um, like I'm making friends who don't have a clue what Christianity Today magazine is mm-hmm. and with friends who like are not part of that so-called. And it's weird how, like I actually am uncomfortable with how much I, how refreshing I find it. And I'm trying to work through like, what in what way is it refreshing and mm. why is that mm. and i feel i feel like it has a lot to do with what you're talking about is like um bringing you back to like this place where i don't know i'm not articulating this well cuz i'm doing it in the moment yeah but i think i hear what you're saying there's though. like a humility associated yes yes no one cares yes. who you are in those yes. places mm-hmm. and you're the worst person at improv in the whole place, at least, like you're all starting in the same. You're starting at a level playing field. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really nice. Yeah, it's so awesome to me, and I think it also has made me change my language mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because, and I think that switch for me as a poet helped me articulate better. Yeah. Because I, when I'm in that room, I don't have these like phrases and things to lean on and say. Like I can't say a word like evangelism right or even a word like secular at our open mic they're gonna be like (laughs) like their minds are might be like secular humanism like what's she talking about like they're not thinking about that and oh you mean just like regular things yeah (laughs) like when you say secular you mean regular things okay so that kind of helped me in my poetry even when i write poetry that is written to be done specifically in a faith-based or church setting Mm -hmm. um I still find myself using language as if I'm in that open mic room. Right. Like that's my that's my reader, so to speak, in yeah. my mind. And I think that helps me so much. Yeah. It humbles me in the best ways. Yeah. You use the right word for it. Right. Cool. So what would you say um has been your biggest struggle in in living out this calling? I want to say the first thing that comes to my mind is learning to really be myself. Mm learning to really be who it is that God called me to be, mm-hmm. not what I'm imagining people expect I should be. Okay. Um, not what would make me more money, mm-hmm. but really like almost constant return to not only like God, what is it you're calling me to do? Like in the sense of like what you called that eight year old girl to do and mm-hmm. you know, those questions, but also like in this season of time, 
where I am in my life, with the relationships I have right now, with the leadership opportunities I have right now, what are you calling me to do right now right. with the resources I have? I think that's a constant question. I think it's a good one to ask. It's hard work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes I, I don't want to ask that. I just want to be able to like sort of like, you know, go on autopilot making decisions. But I feel like that, and I don't know if I, I mean, I'm like, is that a struggle? You know, there's that question too. Um, but I would say inter- like internal struggle of like processing and trying to figure that out. I would say that's a big one. What would you say, what are the things that people want you to be that you have to sort of fight against? I think what I found sometimes in a faith-based setting is there's a way people want art to go. And they either want it to have answers and not have unanswered questions in it, or they want it to have faith and not doubt, or they want it to be so spiritual that it is no longer human. What does that look like? That looks like, in some ways, I think even in the ways we think of what a poem should do in a worship setting, we feel like in that setting, the poet should become a window. And like your job as the poet, as the singer, as the musician, as the worship leader, is to be as clear as glass, that you become nothing, that you become invisible, so that God can stand behind that window. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh, there is a window there, but who cares about that? We're looking at God through the window. And I get that That does sound very spiritual. Right. You know, and I get that thinking. And in certain ways, yes. But in other ways, it's like, well, that kind of doesn't make sense all the way, because then why does God give us these stories? Right. And some of that includes our joy and some of that includes our pain. And why does God give us this skin and give us these particular ways we are if God like I, I guess I wonder if our concept of what that window means is actually true, you know, like. God's window doesn't necessarily look like clear glass always. It could look like this field of flowers. Uh It could look like the two of us having this conversation, that that's also a window of God's, Mm -hmm. of how God is allowing us to see how he works, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways it's some of those concepts that are in our mind of like what makes art holy. Mm -hmm. And I've been at an open mic and seen a few holy moments happen there where the poet or the artist was not trying so desperately to not be human, to make sure their humanity didn't show so that God could shine. And I'm like, God is, (laughs) Mm -hmm. God is amazing. God doesn't need me to shrink. Yeah. That's, I mean, God's not a human being. He doesn't need me to shrink so that he can shine so big. Even, even at the time that I think I'm getting all the glory or whatever my prideful humanity is, God's still shining bigger than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that artists are s- serving different roles, right? Yeah. Like, I think we want artists to serve as preachers. Yes. Sometimes. Yes. Or we want even, you know, uh, I don't know. Like, everyone, when they become a Christian, very quickly, like, feels like they got to do the ministry thing. They got to do the preacher thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, I just keep thinking, as you were saying that, I was just thinking the Psalms are full of like super, super human yeah. poems, um, divinely inspired mm-hmm. poems that end with utter hopelessness. Yes. Hopelessness. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Um, and, and like not so not only do the poems like have sorrow and sadness in them, but some of them like end with sorrow and sadness, yes. Yes. which is crazy to think about. 
I mean, like, 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 like Ecclesiastes. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. don't you think that, like, when I read that book, I'm like, Though wow. that one does have, like, a little bit of but, but the wisdom of God. Right. But then it does have some, like, these things, these things, this is meaningless. Right. These things, these <laughs> right. things, life is meaningless, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, I'm trying to imagine someone, like, if they were writing that passage right now, and it's yeah. like, we're going to sing Good, Good Father, and then you're going to get up and do 17 verses of how meaningless you feel life is right now. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And how know? sometimes people die, guys. Right. I mean, that's what it's, you know. Death is death. Ashes. It's time. It's just time for death sometimes. Yeah. What um, What would you say is like your deepest fear when it comes to li- work, living out your calling? Hmm. This is like the serious moment of the podcast, by the way. Yeah, All these, the, are these, deep. these last few questions. These are the deep questions, yo. <laughs> What is my deepest fear? Um, that I would see God at the end of my life and not have done everything that I can do with what he's given me. I think that's a deep fear. But how? that's a really high bar Yeah. to do everything you can do. Yeah. I mean, I'm human. I'm going to have my limitations. Yeah. But it's like when I get there, whatever that moment is, I mean, we know some of it and then a bunch of it we don't know, right? Right. But I'm like, you know, so I have all this imagination about what it's going to be like. Sure. I don't know if that's like this DVD player that God's going to have and it's going to be like, you're Uh about to have a seat. You're about to watch this whole (laughs) thing. You know, I Uh don't know. But I want to get there and not feel like God is looking back at me like, you hid some things under a bushel. Mm. You let your insecurities keep you from being exactly who I did, who it is I made you to be. Yeah. You let yourself be chained to what you perceived other people's expectations to be instead of just like being who it is right. I made you to be, you know? Like so I think in that way that being my deepest fear motivates me to stay connected to well, what is the spirit saying mm-hmm. I'm called to do right now? And so I don't feel that like a like I'm going to get there and there's this long list of things. There's like this list I have to check off before I die. Yeah. I feel like it is this sense of being. Yeah. You know, and I want I want to be that. Right. You know, so it's my deepest fear to not be that or to look up and have wasted time. I guess that's part of it, too, to like either get to the end of my life or get to a season of my life 10 or 20 years from now and think, oh, man. What I've been doing with my time. Uh-huh. I've been worried and, you know, focused on, I've, I've been Martha, you know, uh-huh. you were focused on so many things that maybe weren't as important to have focused on. You could have loved people more, spent more time with your people than sitting in your room in your head, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like what's is that up? what, is that what, distra- like, is that what tempts you to waste time is, is sitting in your room being in your head? Part of it is definitely being in my head, whether I'm sitting in my room or not. Yes, it is being in my head and just trying to like process and control and think about all that. It is not a place of being. Okay. It is a it is a place centered around what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? What did they think I was doing? What triggers that? I think a part of it is just being a perfectionist. Okay. Which in in certain ways, that drive to be excellent Mm -hmm. is a great thing. Yeah. But the underside of it, where I need God's help, is the underside of that is always feeling like it wasn't good enough, feeling like you've got this super high bar, you're never going to meet it, you know, feeling like God is waiting to, like, wrap you on the knuckles with this long ruler. It's like all Mm. these things that are not true of God, that God doesn't want to be true of you. But that's the part where I need Jesus. Right. And it sounds like part of your bar and your worst moments is like the other people's bar. Yeah, absolutely. And you're trying to live up to that perfection mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could 
step into a time machine. This is the last question. Okay. <laughs> if you could step into a time machine, go back in time and introduce yourself to yourself, uh, what would you tell her? Like my younger self, what yeah. would I tell her? Yeah. Hmm. What would I tell that girl? There's so many things she needs to know about life. Um, some of it's like, you know, not they're not deep things. They're like sure. ignorant thoughts I have. Um, That's interesting too. I would tell her, I would tell her that body that you have when you're in your 20s. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean like what that body looks, but like how much Wendy's that that body can take. <laughs> Um, that that's actually going to be a limited time in your life, that you can have bacon cheeseburgers as many times in the week as you might be having them right now. So in part, um, enjoy that your body bounces back from that. Uh Uh (laughs) Enjoy that time. I needed to hear that. Um, Enjoy that midriff, you know, Uh while while you have a midriff that you feel comfortable Uh (laughs) showing sometimes. Enjoy that while you can, girl. But also, um, (laughs) maybe don't eat Wendy's four times a week. (laughs) Maybe, you know, maybe try to just be between two and three while you're in a season where you don't have to cook, whatever. Those are some things I would tell her. Okay, weird question, but did that be- <laughs> was was that a problem? For- did that become a problem later in life? Well. That makes me want to go, what happened? I can't say. I mean, I'm still like, I'm like a decade away from my 20s now. I'm in yeah. my 30s now. But now I'm realizing like, oh, there are some things that my body is doing okay. that it did not do when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And there are some results that happen when huh. you're in your 30s, not just in how your body looks, but like your energy, right. you know, those things that like, you know, had I maybe taken care of myself a little bit more in my 20s, I would be seeing the results of that in my 30s. But I also want to make sure my younger self enjoys her life right too you so know that's a balance. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I, that's what i would want to tell her like girl you know you know your body can take three bacon cheeseburgers uh-huh. you might get a pimple and that's how you'll know stop eating them for that week but right. girl your body can take it so if you go eat a cheeseburger enjoy it but also maybe like go for a walk uh-huh. right. <laughs> you know right. right like those things i would tell her that i would tell her um you're gonna become a full-time artist that also means you're gonna become a businesswoman and I think when I was younger, I had a lot of like really furrowed brow thoughts about what it meant to be an entrepreneur or to have a business. And a I would have professional artist, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. gosh. I was like, that doesn't sound fun. I yeah. was like, no, instead, <laughs> I'm gonna write poems until Sean Puffy Combs signs me to a record deal. Uh-huh. These are nineties thoughts as well. Sure. So you're just like, I'm gonna sit in my room and write stuff. Uh-huh. And then Sean Puffy Combs or Jay Z or clearly <laughs> Russell Simmons is going to sign me uh-huh. and pay for me to write things in my pajamas. You know, no, that's not going to happen either, girl. Mm-mm. You know, those things. But I, w- I would have wanted to tell myself that to say, you have a businesswoman mm-hmm. inside of you. And what you perceive that to be is not all that it is. There, there will be a lot of hard work to it. There will be a lot of freedom to it. So take a marketing class. Right. Maybe, maybe minor in business yeah. if you want. You know, like yeah. I think I would have gone, I would have wanted to tell my younger self that too. You've been listening to The Calling. Amina Brown is a poet and the author of How to Fix a Broken Record. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes if you want a chance to win a copy of the book and listen in uh, and listen to the next episode to find out if you've won. The Calling is produced by Richard Clark and Morgan Lee. It's edited by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.